hottest table in the house this morning. Sorry. There's a, definitely a bolt coming loose on that one. Or, yeah, it might be sitting back there. That's, that's probably right. Oh, good morning. It's good to see everybody. And uh, kind of the same thing last week. It's good to see you well. Um, not the case for everybody. Um, did want to say a quick thank you. Anybody that came out this week to do a little demo at the new office slash everything else space right down the street, thank you for tearing down sheetrock and tearing up carpet and tearing out the nastiest drop ceiling, um, at least on Main Street, or pretty close to Main Street. Thanks for doing that. Um, pay attention over the next couple of weeks, like construction, as after the people that we're paying to do construction, after they're done, we're going to get in there, put up new sheetrock, new ceiling, we're going to paint, we're going to make it pretty and usable. So if you like making things pretty and usable, we would love to, uh, to have you come in. So Because um, I, I hate painting, I'll just be honest. I'll do it, but I don't think, I don't know, some people may like it, but I hate it. And so if you want to do that, that would be great. And I would encourage you too, like, whether you know it or not, like, if you're new here, like, downtown 29601 is the epicenter of our mission as a church. Like, that's, that's why we exist. God, God planted us here for a purpose, for the people in downtown, the people of 29601. We do our best to take responsibility for that zip code and the places in this zip code that we can actually, you know, make sure that the gospel goes with us. Um, in this space, we want to use that. This is not like an entertainment space for our people. Like, we want our people to use it, but we want to make sure that we're going to be able to use it for this city, for the people of this city, so they have here repeated opportunities to hear and respond to the gospel. Uh, for instance, you can look out that door and see Greenville High School. We serve at Greenville High School. We love the teachers and the staff and the students there. Um, and it'll be great to have kind of a base of operations to say, hey, uh, come here on this, this Friday of each month. We want to feed you breakfast or something like that or anything. There's, there's a tons of things. We have a long list of inside the church, outside the church, things that we want to do. Uh, but we would encourage you to pray that we utilize it incredibly well. In the 13 plus years that we've existed, we've never had like a Monday through Sunday space that we can walk into at any time that we want other than our homes, in which our homes are great, but there's also more things that we want to do and things that we've been called to do, and so we want to do them well, and so uh, just pray with us that we could do that. So there's that. Um, let, me, let me hit a couple quick announcements before we jump in uh, because there's some important things going on. I did not bring a child sponsorship packet up. They're on the back table. We leave for Guatemala in just a few weeks. And for those of you who are sponsoring children already, um, that's awesome. There's still time to sponsor a child. If you haven't started that child sponsorship, it's about 38 bucks. It's not about. It is precisely $38 a month. Um, and, and it does, does a ton of good, not just for that family, but also the community. Um, and if you sponsor a child or you're about to sponsor a child, when we go, if you want us to go and meet them, talk to them, love on them, let us know. We would love to be able to do that. And we can also take them just kind of a, this isn't going to fix everything, but just as a way of saying we love you, we're thinking about you, a bag of groceries. And so if you want to do that for a child that you're sponsoring and you're not going, uh, you need to Venmo my wife 20 bucks, and they're going to go to the grocery store. They'll buy them a bag of groceries and go see them and say, hey, your sponsor family, these folks, they wanted to say they love you, and so here's some things. And also, you can send them a small gift, something simple, something sincere. Um, if, if they're a child, maybe a coloring book um, or crayons or things like that. We don't want flashy, glitzy American, but just stuff that they can use and enjoy, uh, things like that. So no machetes, Kip, um, but Kip's going to be there anyway, so you know, no telling what he may buy. And that's okay, man. Hey, you're thinking, thinking outside the box. Um, but anyway, you know, something simple, sincere. If you want to get that to us before we go, uh, we're taking extra luggage so that we can bless those families. And so we would love to tell you more about that. And if you have any questions, man, talk to my wife. Um, she's with kids this morning, but she'll be glad to answer all of that. And then the only other announcement I'll do before is our discipleship groups. We're going to launch those soon. We're still waiting for that list to populate. And as a result, next Sunday, immediately following worship, we're going to have a meeting upstairs. So if you've signed up and you've already put your name on there, we're going to have a meeting in that, that room right up there. 
this thing is going to fall at some point today. Um, we're going to have a meeting right up there, and so just kind of get together. We're going to talk about structure, how this is going to work, what this is going to look like, and if you haven't signed up yet, you still can. And here's one thing I would encourage you. I know that some of these groups have already started before we called them this or put up the sign-up, so if you're already meeting with people in the hope of pushing and pulling each other towards Jesus, if you're already doing that, come to that meeting next week too. Uh, we want to see your face. We want to know what you're doing. We're not trying to have control and oversight, but we want to help you. That's our job. And uh, we also want to look at you and, and ask what you're doing and if there's anything we can do to help you in those relationships. A lot of those start organically out of our community groups, and we celebrate that, and we love that. Um, but these are another effort for us to do those, and so we want to know. So right after worship next Sunday, right in that super glitzy, comfortable couch room, um, and we'll talk through some of those things. So that's all I got for right now. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 14. We are, uh, we're in a series in Mark, if you haven't heard. Uh, we are there, and man, we just, we just got a few more pages to go. And so um, we're excited to have, to have been doing this, and um, it's been good for me. Hopefully it's been good for you. Uh, today, I'll go ahead and tell you, today it's, it's a big chunk of Scripture, and, and predominantly it's just it's a narrative of that, that week that's leading Jesus to the cross. And like we said a couple weeks ago, um, starting from... The, the upper room and the Last Supper, the new Passover, as we called it, like things are going to move very, very quickly. And, and the snowball has been growing and rolling down the hill pretty much since we started, Mark, but it's really picking up speed and a lot of momentum in the past couple of weeks for us. But in, in Jesus' time, it's just been like 24 hours, 24, 36 hours. And so today we find a lot of what he has already said was going to happen, believe it or not, the things that he said would come true, have come true, or are coming true. And, and so we're going to look at this kind of as a narrative, and it is one of those passages that, that it is just things that we need to know. You know, a lot of weeks, our text in Scripture leads us to, like, things that we need to do, things that we need to, things that we need to change, some aspects of our life that we need to jettison, some things that we need to take on. I'll be honest, like, this particular text is just, this is stuff we need to know as Christ followers, as those of us who want to know Him, be known by Him, make Him known. Like, this is just, this is information that we need. And there will be a couple things, some application points at least, well, of things that we need to be aware of in here. Um, but it is, like, this is just, this is knowledge-rich stuff. And so we want to cover it well today. I'm going to pray, and we'll start in uh, 14, verse 43, and we'll walk through. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you so much for Christ, um, our Redeemer, our Messiah, the one that we were waiting on before we even knew it. Um, God, thank you for sending him. Thank you for asking. Thank you for his obedience uh, that was for your glory and for our good. God, today as we read about these final days before uh, the tragedy and victory of the cross, God, I pray that you would teach us what we need to know, um, that you would educate our minds and change our hearts. Um, God, that you would point us to the necessity of Jesus and the sufficiency of him. God, I thank you um, for what we get to read today. I thank you for his life, his story. Um, his death and his resurrection. God, I thank you for what it means to me, but I thank you for what it means to your church um, and also what it means to the world that needs to hear of you. God, I pray that you would bless the hearing um, and bless our understanding. We love you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So last week, um, we looked at kind of what we said could be viewed as the quiet before the storm uh, when Jesus entered the garden and, and had these, uh, these prayers of, not my will but yours. And what we, kind of the way that we left it, it really wasn't the quiet before the storm. It was the storm happening, but it was just a lot of inner turmoil. Some things that, some places and some ways that we had never seen Jesus. We see him laying prostrate before God the Father. We see him even mentioning the fact that agony is coming. And we actually see the humanity side of Jesus saying, 
I don't want what's about to come, but God the Father, if you do, that's what I will do. And he was able to look forward and see the pain and see the suffering, but he was also able to look forward to see the separation that would occur as a result of my sin, your sin, being placed on him and God not being able to have a part of sin, not being able to be a party to sin. So while the lamb was laid iniquity upon him, God and him, for the first time and the only time in all of eternity, would be cleaved from one another, would be separated for a while. And that presented uh, some trouble and distress and some agony within Christ on top of the fact that he was about to be beaten, he was about to be crushed and emptied of himself for you, for me. Um, and a couple of the things too, like if you, didn't, if you weren't here last Sunday, I would encourage you to go back and take a listen because there were just some ideas there. Number one, we needed to understand that Jesus was crushed for you and for me, for those who believe. And not only do we need to know that, but we actually need to verbally and authentically say thank you for dying for me. Uh, the longer that we follow Jesus, maybe the less often that comes to mind, but we need to remember the day of our salvation, but we need to remember the event, the person, the life, the death, the resurrection that led up to the ability for us to actually have hope, be partakers of hope, and say thank you, Jesus, for doing what you've done. And so go back and listen to that, if you would, um, to stay caught up. So today we find ourselves in verse 43. Uh, the, the passage that we looked at last week, it kind of ended uh, after Jesus had predicted that one of you will betray me. We read that the weeks previous. And, and he said at the end, after his prayers, and he went and he found his disciples sleeping in again. He's like, hey, it's, it's done. The time is over. Get up. Let us be going. My betrayer, he's coming up the road. Let's go and meet him. And that's where we find him today in verse 43. Mark uses one of his favorite transliterated words. It says in verse 43, and immediately, that means right then, believe it or not, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer, Judas, had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Yep, that just happened. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against me? Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be filled. And they all left him and fled. I'm going to read verse 51 and 52, then we'll take a pause. And a young man followed him and nothing, with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. I'll go ahead and say verse 51 and 52 are a bit odd. I don't have a good answer for those. Uh, no one really does. They, they're not mentioned in the other synoptics or John. Uh, I'll give you some opinions on that in just a minute, but I'll just go ahead and just tell you. 51 and 52... They're, they're kind of weird in the midst of the, the narrative, but that's okay. And so where we find Jesus, he's, he's had the new Passover. He's instituted this new deal with them, the new Lord's Supper, told them that when they do this, remember him, do it together, do all of that. He goes in the garden, he prays, he accepts the fate. And like we talked about last week, uh, it's, it's my belief and understanding that the sin of me, of you, our iniquity, iniquity was being laid upon Jesus there, and it was beginning to crush him, just like the olives in Gethsemane were crushed and emptied of all of their goodness. He was being crushed on our behalf starting there, and it would culminate with the cross. Uh, but so they leave that place. They go to meet their betrayers, which was one of his 12, Judas. 
And so it says, as they were going, an angry mob came. We're not exactly sure of the number or how many, uh, and it was made up of various types of people sent from the Sanhedrin. There were probably some Roman guards or authorities there or temple police, and they came and they met him with swords and clubs. And so it was kind of a, a, a crazy thing um, that that's how they came and met him, and he even called that out to them in just a minute. And there was even some painful irony of the sign. Judas had already made a deal with the ruling authorities. We see it several verses ago or several passages ago in which at one point after a woman had emptied some very costly stuff on Jesus as a means of worship and celebrating and serving him, it ticked some people off. And the disciples were a little amiss of like, why would all of this financial stuff be wasted on Jesus? And Jesus corrected them and said, no, 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 leave the woman alone. She's done a good thing. She did what she could. And after that, we see Judas go to the ruling authorities and make a deal. Basically saying, look, um, I will turn him over to you. I know you want to kill him. I'll find a way. And somewhere between then and now, he had made a deal. And sometime, maybe even in the midst of Jesus praying in the garden, when Judas was left with the rest, uh, he went off and he found those ruling authorities. And he said, okay, tonight's the night. Jesus is praying. We're going to go and we're going to get him. He's on the Mount of Olives in the garden. We're going to march up there you know, from the city about two miles, and we're going to capture him. And he said, this is my sign. You might not recognize him. You probably do. Everybody at this point knows him. But just so that you're sure, I'll walk up and I'll kiss the one that I want you to take. Really interesting. Like crazy, painful irony that this is the sign that Judas chose. Like a kiss back then was a big deal. Like we even see in the New Testament church, it says, greet each other with a holy kiss. One cheek or two or maybe bam, 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 like three. You know, it was a big deal. It was a, a true sign of like, I love you, I appreciate you, I value you. But in that moment, Judas was using it to say, I'm going to betray you. Painful irony. It's also very painful irony and also just kind of in your face that the way that he greeted him is just rabbi with an exclamation point. Almost like, it's good to see you. Let me kiss you. Oh, and you're about to get arrested. Like in this moment, like, like I, I can't put myself in Jesus' sandals. Like I can't feel what he felt. But, but I would love to imagine like at least those that were around him and even Jesus himself, even though he knew this was coming, like what a way to be betrayed and by one of your own. In the moment to, to be kissed, to be greeted as teacher, rabbi, capital R rabbi, by the way, which was like teacher, master that I love and submit to, um, yeah, here you go. Like the pain in that moment. It's crazy. Like just the, man, what a, what a kick. And so we, we find ourselves in this place, and Jesus even kind of greets them and says, why do you come with me to come at me with clubs and swords? I've, I've been in the temple every day. You could have arrested me at any time, and you've been there, you've listened to me, and yet you think you need clubs and swords to take me. Just so many messages here that people really don't understand what's going on, who this is, but they just know that at some point he made us so mad that we wanted him to die. We, we wanted him off the map, and so this is how they came. And so in this moment, Jesus reminds him of his nature by even clarifying, like we see this in Matthew, Luke, and John, certain, certain parts of it also in addition to Mark. Um, and at one point, he just reminds them, he's like, you've come after me with clubs and swords. Don't you know that I could call down a legion of angels right now and stop all of this if I wanted to? I could make all of this go away, but I haven't. I've endured everything up until now. You've seen me as this meek teacher in the temple day by day, now, you saw me flip your tables at one point. You're still ticked off about that, which we'll reference in a bit. But this is how you come after me? 
I could have stopped this anytime I wanted. But this is, this is how they came. And at one point in there, it even says, now in Mark, it just says one of those with him pulls out his sword and cuts off one of the servant's ears. John lets us know that was Peter. <laughs> you know, believe it or not, like, it's not even Bible humor, it's just funny. That's, that's Peter, you know, act first, think later, speak first, think later, all of those things. But at the same time, I'm not sure I would have done a whole lot different. Pulls out a sword, cuts his ear off. And in Matthew, we're even reminded that Jesus tells him, look, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by it too. Don't do that. Put that away. And then we actually see in the rest of the Gospels that apparently he either put the ear back on or touched it and another one grew. But either way, it says that Jesus healed the man in that moment, right there. So they're confronting him with spears and swords and clubs. They're taking him by force and by deception. And in the moment, what does Jesus do? He heals one of them. So crazy. Like, I mean, I think it's riddled with, like, if we're trying to live like Jesus, number one, when our enemies come after us, we should seek their healing instead of their destruction. Like, we could, we could make that case, but we just want to read the story at this point. And so we see Jesus remind them of his nature just by saying, look, I could have stopped this at any point that I wanted. I'm going to heal you even though you're here to take me. And Peter, put away your sword. That's not how we're called to live. Just over and over and over. This is Jesus, completely different, completely other than, not normal. Everybody else... They would have fought. Like, you're not going to take me easy. But no, Jesus just said, no, we're going to go and meet my betrayer. He's coming up the road. Let's, let's go and meet him. And when we get there, we're just going to let it happen. In this text, too, he said that, um, let the scriptures be fulfilled. I could have stopped it any time I wanted with great force, great intentionality, but I didn't. But let what's going to happen, happen. And then it tells us something else that Jesus said would happen, and it says uh, they all left him and fled. The they there's the disciples. Remember, he told them right before he confronted Peter about he would deny him. He said at one point the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter, reaching back to Zechariah. And at this point, this is when it happened. They saw Jesus arrested. They saw their rabbi that they had been following so closely, so intently. They saw him taken by the mob, and they took off. They didn't want it to happen to them. Even though when, when they were told it would happen, they're like, nope, not going to happen. It's when Peter got really upset, like, nope, even if i got to die with you, not going to happen. We saw it, and now it's happened. And then, verse 51 and 52, the young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, and he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. There's, if you read scholars on this, people that aren't necessarily Bible scholars but literary scholars, they start taking guesses at who this guy is. Here's what we know. We don't know. <laughs> We don't know. Here's what we can take away from this. Chaos was here. Like from our standpoint, chaos was here. Whether this was a, like a lowercase disciple or whether this was somebody that followed them from the upper room, we don't know. Whether this was just some teenager that was enamored by Jesus and his teachings and, and what was going on. Either way, it got so scary that he took off and ran right out of his makeshift cloak. He probably grabbed the closest thing he could when he left the house, which was a linen cloth or a sheet, something that would go on bedding. And he didn't even have his jacket, just had on his undergarments, and he wanted to follow, wanted to see. But then when the mob showed up, it says he took off, and he left the one thing that was covering him up because things just got crazy. Chaos was here. All the order that they had known, all of the truth that they had known, all of the following, the steadfast Christ that they had known was at a very abrupt halt, and he had just been taken. Even though Jesus had been telling them, I will be taken I will be handed over 
into the hands of sinners and angry men. He had said that verbatim, but when this happened, they were so shocked, they just ran. They ran. Chaos was here. Verse 53, let's read this next chunk of passage. It says, They led Jesus to the high priest, which was Caiaphas at the time, and all the chief priests and the elders of the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting in the guards, sitting with the guards, and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, quote, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent, made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. So after he was arrested, the disciples scattered. We had that moment with the man who ran away mostly naked. Then it says they led him to Caiaphas's house. Mark doesn't name him. The other gospels and let us know who he was. Caiaphas was the high priest from 18, AD 18 to around 36, the son-in-law of the previous high priest. And even though the religious establishment of Israel did not have like uh, jurisdi juris jurisdictional like authority in this place because they were still under Roman rule, they still could govern their own stuff to a degree. And so he was taken there, and he was put on this weird false trial. Because understand, like I said, the snowball had been gaining speed and growing since the very beginning of this, of this book that we've been reading, from the very first time that, that he healed someone on the Sabbath, from the very first time that, that he went in and confronted the religious. In the beginnings of John, John chapter 2, I believe that he, he actually cleansed the temple twice. In the beginning of John, we see him go in and flip tables, chase them out, because they had made the temple something it was not supposed to be. And he'd even told them, he's like, look, uh, you're seeking a sign, destroy this temple. And on the third day, I'll raise it. He wasn't talking about the one made by hands, the second physical temple. He was talking about him, the dwelling place of God. But they heard it and they were offended. And since that time, they had been seeking ways to take him off the map, take him off the board, kill him. And in this place, they had had enough. They were done. He had reached a level of popularity. People were following him. They were clamoring to hear what he was going to say next, who he was going to heal next. And, oh, there was this deal about the tenants, too. Remember the parable of the tenants just a couple chapters ago when he kind of pronounced judgment on the leadership and the people of Israel, saying, look, you had been granted authority. You had been granted the, the possible rule over these people to lead them and guide them towards an understanding as to who this holy God is, but you've squandered it. And as a result, you religious leaders, you're going to be gone. You're going to be gone. Forty-some-odd years later, they were. They were irritated. They were like, how dare you? How dare you, son of a carpenter? How dare you, man with calluses? How dare you, man that doesn't even wear a beautiful robe and have an amazing beard and all the cords and phylacteries that we do? How dare you tell us that we're not going to be around much longer? How about we just kill you? So that's what they sought out to do, to find a way. But the problem is the truth wasn't going to kill Jesus. 
There was nothing truth or valid about him that was going to lead him to death. And so what did they do? They, they gathered as many people as they could to lie. It says they were seeking false testimony, like they were after the perfect lie that could send him to death. You know, and normally what they would do is they would stone someone. But at the time, they probably did not have the legal authority to do that, but they were just trying to find a way to kill him any way that they could. So they said, let's go out and gather up some liars, get them to lie. But here's the problem. Liars lie, and liars can't agree. Even in their deal, in their judge setting, what they had to have was two or more people to tell the same lie, and they couldn't even find it. It says their testimonies did not agree. They couldn't find two people to tell the same lie. Just a bunch of lies. A bunch of various lies. I saw him raise a cat from the dead. Cats are evil. Everybody knows that. No, 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 it wasn't a cat. It was a dog. You guys leave. That's nothing that was said, but it would be pretty funny, even in a very serious situation. Because we know that all dogs go to heaven, but all cats, when they die, they go back to hell. Um, I'm sorry. It's true. But anyway, and so... They couldn't even find two liars to agree. And then finally, they were getting close. They were getting close. A couple people came in there and said, yeah, yeah, we heard him. We heard him. He talked about the temple. And people kind of perked up. They're like, the temple? Yeah, we heard him say that, hey, I'll destroy this temple, the one made by hands, and then I'll build it back, not made with hands. Now, the funny thing is, they were kind of speaking truth, but they were lying at the same time, but they just couldn't quite keep their story straight. Like I said, in, in John chapter 2, he did go into the temple, and, and they were upset. They were like, by what authority do you do these things? Give us a sign for this authority that you claim to have, early in his ministry, most likely. And he said, you destroy this temple, and on the third day, I'll bring it back. <laughs> Just, it's crazy, right? Show me a sign. I'll give you a sign. I'll give you a sign. Best one you'll ever see. And just from that point in John chapter 2, you, you give me two years, two and a half, you kill me, and watch what happens. I'll come back. Be the greatest sign you've ever seen. And while they were irritated by it, it was the very thing we need to hear. It was the very thing we need to believe. It's the very thing they needed. But yeah, they thought it was preposterous to such a degree. They were like, all right. You talk about our temple, we're going to kill you. Talk about us, we're going to kill you more. You threaten our position, we're going to kill you a lot. But even after that, they, they couldn't quite keep their story straight. And so Caiaphas said, um, do you have nothing to say for these accusations? But Jesus was being exactly what Isaiah 53, 7 said that he would be. He would be a sheep led to, led to, led to slaughter, yet he wouldn't say a word. He'd let it happen because he knew that it needed to. He knew that it needed to. Our Savior was not a Savior of circumstance. This Jesus was not a product of the right time and the right place. Our Jesus was an intentional Savior, an intentional Savior that, that chose the cross on our behalf for God's glory. And in this moment, just like the, the mob taking him, he could have stopped it at any time. He could have spoken up and he could have said, you know what? All of these things that your people that you've gathered, all the things they're saying, they're lies. I can tell you the truth of the circumstance if you would like, but nope. 700 previous years, 700 years later, pre previous to this, the prophet Isaiah had said there will be a sheep. He will be led to slaughter. 
And instead of crying, instead of fighting, he's just going to take it without a word. And he did. Because if he had stopped it, our hope would have ran out. It would have never been realized. We couldn't have had it. He would have been disobedient to the request the Holy Father had made. Then therefore, he would have been disobedient. He would have sinned. His death would have meant nothing. Just a crazy other snowball that could have gone in the opposite direction. And our good would not have been looked after. But instead, for the glory of God and the good of those who he calls and who love him, he kept quiet. He didn't say a word. But then Caiaphas asked another question. He asked another question, and he says this in verse 61. He says, but he remained silent and made no answer again. The high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Now, again, we've talked about the Christ, what it meant. The Christ was literally translated. We, we call it Christ, and, and it would have just meant the deliverer, the Messiah, Messiah was not a Hebrew ideology. It was a Hebrew idea, but it was not a Hebrew word. But it was coming into play as people were singing about who was coming. Even as he entered into Jerusalem, the people gathered and they began to sing, Our Deliverer has come. Our Deliverer, he's here. And so he asked, he was like, Are you, are you him, the Son of the Blessed? Even in this place, like Caiaphas knew, he couldn't even mention the name of God, so he said the Blessed. But he's like, Are you the Son of God? Is that you? Now, Jesus could have answered very differently because up until this point, like, he hadn't necessarily been, uh, he hadn't been dishonest, but he had been selective with his words as to about revealing who he was. Because if he would have said this from the very first moment, now, granted, at his baptism, he didn't say it, but God the Father did. I mean, God the Father came down like a dove from the sky, laid upon him his spirit, and said, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, even before he had done anything. So people had heard it at the river. But Jesus had been just kind of bit by bit dropping breadcrumbs as to his true identity. He had done it or revealed it in the things that he had done, the way that he had healed, the way that he had taught. He had said certain things. He had said what was going to happen to him, therefore fulfilling uh, the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. He had revealed it that way. And, and even when, when Peter asked, you know, I, I believe that you're Messiah, Jesus didn't deny it. He didn't deny it. He said, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. And Jesus was like, yeah, you're right. But he hadn't been shouting it from the mountaintops. But in this place, in this time, the very one thing that he should not have said if he wanted to live was who he really was. In this moment, because they, they didn't have a single thing against him. The liars couldn't even agree. At this moment, if he had just continued to keep his mouth shut here, he would have walked out the door. They would have kept falling and they would have dogged him to death, but, but he could have walked out. He just had to be silent here. That's all. But instead, Caiaphas says, who are you? Is this who you are? And Jesus just said, I am. Now, I mean, we could, we could take that and make it the name of God. You know, because in the Old Testament, when, when Moses asked, who do we say that you are? He just said, God said, I am. And that's there too. And so it's kind of this double-edged sword kind of a thing, like he is identifying himself as God, period. Long story there, but he's also just saying, yeah, I am who you say I am. I agree. I am that. I'm the deliverer. I'm the son of God. That's me. The very one thing that if he didn't want to die, he should not have said. But he said it. He said, I am. 
And then he said a little more. <laughs> like he didn't just, he could have stopped there, but he didn't. He didn't. He wanted to make sure. He said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man, me, by a prophetic title, seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He's like, yeah, I am him, and I'm going to be sitting right beside God the Father, and I'm going to come back. It might not tick you off. might not make you bad. You might just hear it and make it, oh, that's, that's pretty whimsical. But everybody in that room, as soon as he said it, they probably set up, and they're like, what would you just say? What was that? Oh, now you die. The very one thing that he should not have said if he wanted to live, he just uttered it all like that. Just fell out of his mouth, just like he meant it, because he did. And it says, when the high priest, when Caiaphas heard this, it says, and, he, and the high priest tore his garments and said, what else do we need to hear? The tearing the garments kind of a thing for a judge in this situation is a lot like a gavel. I don't know how many people have been watching the Murdoch case this week and last week and the weeks before. I'm tired of it, but either way, my wife loves it. That's okay, babe. You can watch it. But at some point, that judge is going to drop that gavel and say, the verdict's in. This is it. That's what Caiaphas just did. He stood up. He tore his garment. He said, that's it. Here's my decision. You die. That's it. He said, what, what else do we need to hear? He said, you just, you just claim to be God. You just, you just claim to be God. Yep, you're going to die. You're going to die. What further witness do we need? Verse 64, you have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And then before, before they could even do anything else, it says, and some began to spit on him and cover his face and strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. It says the way they greeted him in his punishment is they just started right then to beat him. Started to beat him, make fun of him. These same ideas would be repeated later when he's hanging on the cross. and Just a lot of terrible things, like the agony that Jesus foresaw, at least in the physical time, it had began right here. And it wouldn't stop until he was dead. But it's so interesting that he could have stopped it all. He could have stopped it all. It just cut it off. Walked away. But he didn't. Because he wasn't an accidental Savior. He was a very intentional, intentional Savior. He knew what needed to happen. He knew that he had to die on our behalf, and he made sure. He made sure that it would happen. I think the reason, it's, it's really interesting. I always try to go and I'm like obscure passages. I'm like, why, why is the, are those two little verses between that first big chunk and that second chunk about the guy running out of his linen garment. Why is it there? I think it's to show us that in all of these moments, it was just off the chain, crazy, moving so fast, going off the rails for those who had followed Jesus. And it was just, man, it was out of the blue. It was crazy. It seemed like an unstoppable force. But in the midst of that unstoppable, chaotic moment, we see a Christ that was completely in control. In the middle, like hear it, this is important. In the middle of this crazy, chaotic, seemingly unstoppable moment, we see a Christ that was in complete and utter control. Now, like if we want to make some application about ourselves, we can say, look, in the middle of my storm, Jesus is in control. And I could even provide tons of other passages to back that up. Yeah, so, so we can take that. But I think for us, the thing that we need to see is that, man, Jesus is in control and it's for God's glory and for our good. 
Jesus is in control for God's glory and our good. If he had not have willingly walked to the cross, if he had to be taken by force, it would not have been to the same effect. If he had not have been willingly obedient, even obedient to the point of death, as Philippians 2 says, for us, it would not have been the same thing. Jesus knew exactly what needed to happen. He knew who would be the beneficiaries of his tragedy, and so therefore he walked willingly did everything he needed to do to make sure that his punishment would take place. His punishment, which even that statement right there is pretty crazy because he deserved nothing. Like he was flawless, perfect, in complete biblical terms. He was holy, 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 trihagian, Jesus. He was perfect. But yet he chose punishment. think again we we go back to the garden and we look even there of control even in the midst of chaos when he's being just man just this onslaught of pressure and temptation even in that moment even in that moment of his humanity side saying I want to run his God God side saying stay even then he was in control not what you want not what I want but what you want not what I want but what you want and then we go to his arrest and his betrayal. Even then, he says, don't you know, I could, I could call down a legion right now. You come after me with, with sticks and clubs and swords. I could stop this before you even walked up the street. And he didn't say it with the attitude that I'm saying it with right now. He probably said it in a much more meek tone. But he was in control. All the false testimony, he just had to speak because he was truth. He was the word made flesh. He could have said whatever needed to be said to stop this trial from happening and offered a perfect rebuttal against every single false testimony. But no, he was, he was quiet. He was in control. And when asked who he was, he could have answered that truthfully but in a different way and walked out. But he didn't. He said exactly what needed to be said to make Caiaphas tear his garment, render the verdict, and lead him to the cross. I think the reason that we read this painful account over and over and over, the reason that we should, is it should remind us that Jesus loves us so stinking much. So much. So much to the point that he chose every bit of this for you, for me. He chose every bit of it. He willingly agreed to walk to the cross, to hang there until he suffocated, brutally, viciously, horribly, because we have one shot at hope. It doesn't rest in me. It doesn't rest in you. It, it only rests in a willing, perfect sacrifice. He knew he was that perfect sacrifice, so he had to be willing. We read this, and we see the tragedy. We see the the horrible nature of all of it. And it should remind us that Jesus loves us so much. So much. And I do believe that's motivation. To love him in return. Now motivation is not enough for salvation. It's just not. There needs to be a work of God there. But then after that work of God, of him calling us and drawing us, pointing us to our sin, pointing us to his goodness, allowing us to choose him instead of our sin nature... After that, like, man, there needs to be great motivation for us to stay close. 
Like we talked about last week, if we haven't thanked Jesus for our salvation lately, we need to thank him for our salvation. But at the same time, we need to see the fact that he loved us beyond measure, that he loved us without end, that he loved us to the point of his own death, his own sacrifice, his own agony. And yes, I do think that spurs on in us a love in return. It has to. When we see someone lay down the things that are important, that are good, what does that do in us? Like if we, in human terms, like if we see our spouse give up something we know that they love because there's something that we may want, that gives us a great sense of appreciation. And, and on the slightest, just in the smallest term, like, yeah, I appreciate that a lot. Thank you. Thank you. But when we see the length that Jesus went to, like all of the things that he laid down, his very self, that should do something big in those of us who have been called according to his purpose. Huge in us. Push us and pull us and motivate us, allowing us to see the sacrifice, allowing us to see the level of pain and agony and be like, you, you did that for me. Maybe you've never heard that, yes, Jesus died so that you, you can know God and be made right with him. The word in scripture that we would say is be reconciled, be made legally square, right, done. That you could be reconciled to God. Because of your own accord, of the good that you've done, it's not enough. The scales would still be tipped way against you. There's no chance. Only the goodness that rested in Jesus, the righteousness, as Scripture calls it, only His good was enough to balance the scales. As a matter of fact, not just balance, but tip them in our favor, if we just believe. And it wouldn't be called sacrifice if He didn't give stuff up. He gave it all up for our good but he also did it for God's glory because at every point we we see Jesus at every point anytime pretty much in scripture in the gospels when he's being praised he's like it's the father it's not me it's the father and even even in this place like yes in just a, a couple passages ago he's like not what I want but what you want right now my humanity side wants to flee wants to run wants to get out of here because what's coming is bad but God I trust you God the Father, I, I trust you. You do what you will. Pour your cup out on me. I'll drink it. For our good, but for God's glory. Because he also knew that the greatest glory that God would ever receive, believe it or not, would be a people unto himself. God's greatest glory that he'll ever receive is going to be a people unto himself. And that's us. That's us. That's the church, the capital C church from all ages past, all ages to come, and the age that we're in now, God's greatest glory is going to rest in his people. Those that depend on him, those that trust in him, those that speak of him, those that tell of his goodness, those that tell of the sacrifice of Christ, those that tell of the unending love of God, those that tell of the salvation that only rests in Jesus. There's where God's glory rests. And we couldn't do that without Christ and his sacrifice for our good, but for God's glory. And it's, man, it's heavy. Like there's no way that I should be able to look at the cross and think, yep, that just happened. Huh, typical Friday. Not typical. Tragic. Despicable. Horrible. Painful. All while being incredibly victorious. 
Nobody else other than Jesus could take tragedy and make it victory. Nobody other than Jesus could take sacrifice and make it alignment. Nobody else could take death and turn it into life. But Jesus did all of those, if we just believe. A lot wrapped up in that, honestly, but Scripture just says if you just believe. So I think for those of us who do believe, who do know Christ, I think we look at his sacrifice and, yes, like we talked about before, we say thank you, but at the same time, we ask, what does this make me want to do? Deep down, like as followers of Christ, those who have already been bought with a price, paid in full, owned by God himself because of Jesus' death, what does this make me want to do? I think there's motivation there. And, and what you're going to answer, this is going to vary from person to person, but, but then for the rest of, of people that are sitting that don't know Christ, like you need to hear. He did that so that you could know him, so that you could be known by him, so that you would have the privilege, the right, the opportunity, and the beauty of making him known. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? The gospel says you believe. You believe. You believe that his life, his death, his resurrection, and his goodness that he laid down at the cross, even though he had no badness in him, was enough to make you right with God. Because your goodness wasn't enough. And you trust in that. You trust in that. And then you say, the wrong that I've done in the past, the sin, the places that I've missed the mark, the things that I didn't do what you desired me to do, I don't want that anymore. I want your good over my bad. And you choose that. And it's not a prayer of asking him to come into a place and, and do that kind of thing. That's fine if that's what you've done. But the truth is, it just says, look, we believe that what he did was enough to make me right. And then we trust in that for us to be made right with God eternally. And we just tell him, God, I'm sorry for what I've done. I don't want to do it anymore. I want you instead. And according to the gospel, we will be made right with God for eternity. And then we have life with him, everlasting. He took death and turned it into life for you and for me and those of us who believe. It can be had by all if you just believe. This is why we exist as a church. This message of tragedy that brings victory. This message of death that offers life like this city, the city beyond these brick walls. They desperately need to hear they're dying without it. And if they died, they would be separated forever. This is not a fairy tale. This is not a feel-good story. This is not something that we put on T-shirts and business cards. This is the place in which true life begins. True freedom from our previous life ends, and freedom in Christ to know Him and be used by Him begins. This is not something that we just talk about. This is who we are, who we've been reborn to be. It doesn't make a social club. It doesn't make a, a good slogan. It makes life. And we view it with the seriousness and the heartfelt gratitude that it deserves. And it moves us to speak. If we want to know, what do I do with this? Where does my gratitude with this take me? I will tell you where it takes me. I will tell you where it takes you. I will tell you where it takes those of us bound to God by Christ. It takes us to a place of speaking the gospel 
sharing the truth with those who desperately need to hear, because without it, there is no hope. There is no chance. There is no life. It doesn't matter how charitable they are, how good they are. Without the truth and the valid life, death, and resurrection of Christ, hope cannot be found. It can't. And I know that in a world where it says there are no more absolutes, that seems so counterculture and contrary to the way that we're being led. But here's the reality of it. There is one Christ. There is one Father. There is one Spirit. And there is one way to Him. And that is it. That's it. And the glory of God rests in His people, but it rests in His people telling of the goodness of God. The glory of Him that awaits if they just believe. But Romans 10 says they can't believe unless they hear. And they can't hear unless we speak. How beautiful are the feet of those who take the good news. We can have pretty feet. I hate feet. (laughs) But according to Scripture, man, we get to take the goodness and the good news of Jesus. And it comes from our heart and out of our mouths. Into the lives of people that desperately need to hear it. Tragedy, yes. Victory, yes. Death, yes. Life, yes. Contradictions abound. But Jesus is there. We have been saved into a mission that started way before our lives did. Way before. And it doesn't matter if you're a pastor, a deacon, an elder, a small group leader. It doesn't matter. All of us who have been called by God have been called ministers and servers of the gospel. Every one of us. Starts with those in your circle Jerusalem, it goes a little further to those outside of your circle, your Judea. It goes to Samaria, to the places where people hate you and you hate them. And then it goes to the ends of the earth, places that you've never been or imagined. All of us. Everyone. And so, yeah, I do ask you, have you thought about the sacrifice? But then I ask you, have you shared it? Have you spoken of it? Have you told someone else? Because we must. Our salvation doesn't depend on it, but theirs likely may. Theirs likely may. Say, wow, Matthew, that's real nice of you to end that way. Well, I think it's a good place. I would encourage you over the next couple of minutes before, before we have our benediction, um, just to ask God just a simple question. Who in my life needs to hear of your goodness? Who in my life needs to hear of your goodness? And hold on to that name and pray for an opportunity. So just over the next just couple minutes, just some version of that question, God, who, who around me needs to hear of you and how can I share?